so uh, I'm John Lamberton, and I'm here with Andreas Gomez-Mielsen. Andreas is a consciousness researcher at uh, the Qualia Research Institute. And uh, along with Mike Johnson, he's studying the symmetry theory of valence. Is that what you're calling it? Yes. Awesome. And uh, he's also a blogger at uh, Qualia Computing. Um, I really like this blog. It's a treasure trove of some, you know, heady shit and uh, really interesting out there stuff. So um, Andres and I have never met before, so I thought I'd give him a quick rundown of who I am and why um, I thought this presentation of his was really interesting. The presentation is uh, Harmonic Society, uh, was it Eight Models of Art for Scientific Paradigm of Aesthetic Qualia. And uh, so basically I'm a guitarist and a composer in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I do a lot of like algorithmic music, sort of generative music, and uh, I guess you could say that I'm like exploring the sort of rhythmic permutation space, if you will, uh, to sort of foreshadow one of the models you're gonna talk about later. Uh, but I'm also into like the nootropic space, transhumanism, and so I've always sort of wondered about uh, what is a musician to do in the, the transhumanist world and uh, what's the role of a musician. So um, also my day job is uh, doing copy. I, I do quality control for a copy company. So uh, just to sort of, fill out my mental model of you, Andres. Can I first ask you what your coffee habits are like, if you have any? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I tend to say that uh, coffee saves lives. Uh, I mean, it, it really depends on ultimately what the you know true causal role of, of coffee is, but it's pretty clear that coffee drinkers tend to live longer, have uh, less depression, have fewer incidents of diabetes and obesity. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I. I do drink a couple cups of coffee a day and uh, may, I, I probably about like three cups of coffee. Um, and if I'm feeling too wired, I'd, I'll just switch to decaf coffee. But yeah, pretty much coffee all day or every day. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Uh, are you just like a black coffee drinker? Is there any sort of coffee that you prefer, like dark, light roast? I think, yeah, just very, yeah, just plain. What, is it called a dark coffee, I guess? Yeah. Cool, cool. Awesome. Well, yeah, I just wanted to sort of complete my, my sense of who you are by uh, viewing you through that lens. So um, anyway, I, I found this presentation of yours super interesting. And um, so if you want to get right into it, the first uh, model that you talk about is uh, family resemblance and semantic deflation. And I'll be honest, this one, uh, this one, the last one didn't really click for me the same way that the other six did. And so um, I'm curious, uh, I'd like to sort of like give you my sense of it, but why don't you tell us about it first? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like this is the, the model that kind of um, recognizes that there is no necessary and sufficient conditions for something to be art. And I mean, the classic example from Wittgenstein was, you know, this concept of a game that like, okay, like what is a game? And, you know, if you, if you press somebody who plays a lot of games to, to define it, you know, they may say something along the lines of, you know, there's like, uh, more than one player, there are, there are points, there is a winning condition, there's strategy. But the truth is that, you know, for any kind of condition like that that you provide, you will always find a counterexample. Like, I mean, like, do the staring game have, a, have like, points? Like, not necessarily, or, like, you know, um, sports are, like, very different than board games. And so his main idea was that the very term uh, game uh, doesn't really refer to something with necessary and sufficient conditions. It's much more kind of a pointing in the general direction of a cluster of properties that tend to happen together. 
they tend to be very correlated. And I guess like that, there was also like a time where like a, a lot of data science concepts were in, you know, like household names, like nowadays we can say like clustering, you know, and a lot of people mm -hmm. know what we're talking about. Uh, but at the time saying like, oh yeah, you know, clusters in the space of meaning. Okay, like that was a very difficult concept to grasp at the time. And um, the, the main point of like model number one is that in art, you don't really have, you know, like a set of necessary conditions that all pieces of art needs, needs to have. Um, and one of the, I guess, like things is that for each of these models, you can kind of like flip it around and say like, well, one thing is what these models are saying about, about the nature of art, but then you can also think of the model itself as an aesthetic. And I think like to a large extent, if you start in a kind of like very traditional or culturally bound conception of art, where you think, you know, art is just, you know, how my tribes uh, do face painting for a ritual mm -hmm. or, you know, like my, uh, my clothing for like a traditional ceremony or something like that. Then I think like the semantic deflation model is very appealing because it, it has kind of this element of rebelliousness. It's like, well, what about this? And what about this? And um, of course, you know, some classic um, art movements like Dada and uh, pop art, I tend to associate with, uh, with this kind of semantic deflation where they, they're saying like, oh, you think art has these properties? Well, how about this? This is completely different, but hey, people are still paying attention. <laughs> We still managed mm -hmm. to put it in a in a museum, so yeah, I guess like that's the aesthetic of the model as well. Gotcha. And you, uh, you know, when you bring up like Duchamp's Fountain and uh, that this idea of sort of like meta art, like art that is about art, uh, it makes me wonder, like, if you're tying this back to like a an actual medium of art creation, is the medium basically kind of like the conversation about art, like the sort of game like. Uh, dialectic between like artists in that community where it's like very conceptual and just trying to like you know figure out what art is yeah definitely and uh and it's kind of a uh arms race almost because you mm -hmm. you might look at a previous movement and say like well sure they were pushing the boundary of art but they still were working on the assumption that art had these other properties you know mm -hmm. um I would potentially like talk about like new mediums as well as uh, kind of exploring this aesthetic. Um, just uh, this last weekend, I was uh, I made a video reading out loud the the tactileist manifesto, and I think like mm -hmm. tactileism also to some extent is related to the semantic deflation. It's like oh, you think art is only about you know music and pretty pictures and sculpture? Like okay, no, how about just <laughs> immersing yourself uh, physically and and touching everything? That being art itself. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, so uh, I feel like as as these models get further down the list, it's almost as if uh, the definition of art becomes broader and broader, like some of the final things are almost more therapeutic. Uh, do you feel the same way about that? Or uh, like, I don't know, can you elaborate to, on that? To, to, to some extent, I mean, they, they build on top of each other. And I mean, I, I do think like, it, there's a lot of uh, purpose to like putting semantic deflation as the first model. Because mm -hmm. that sets the tone for how none of the other models is going to be the final answer, or right? like they're just going to be different lenses uh, through which to to see like art. And more than that, the the, the kind of the reason why we we should still, in a sense, like transcend num like the model number one, 
is that it's very easy to get stuck in it. I mean, there's a lot of people who, I think like their whole career is just like trying to push the boundary of art. And in the process of doing that, they may, in a sense, like miss out on some of the very valuable things that perhaps other more traditional forms of art do have. So mm-hmm. there's kind of this, this idea of like, your model of art is not only about what qualifies as art or not, but it's also about like what its value is. And mm-hmm. if you're only stuck in like semantic deflation, I get the feeling that you may, in a sense, be throwing the, the baby with the bathwater and just completely forgetting of actually how valuable even traditional forms of art can be. Cool. Uh, yeah, I feel like you, you mentioned that this is the starting point and uh, it doesn't necessarily give you a, a road to value. And uh, you know, as a musician that also like reads less wrong and that type of stuff, I feel like I've been wrestling with what is the value and the utility of art? Like, uh, you know, am I like wasting my time doing this? Uh, but so I feel like this question or this first model sort of exemplifies that. But uh, do you want to move on to cool kid theory? <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> So, I mean, you've probably noticed that, if, I mean, if you go to a, a, an art gallery, a, a lot of people t- tend to have like the reaction of like, I could have done that. I mean, especially with like something like modern art. Right. Um, and people like can be actually pretty offended if, if they go to an art gallery and all they see is kind of like low effort, quote unquote, like sheet posting <laughs> or something like that mm-hmm. in, in the art domain. It's like, oh, that's just a silly idea. It's not. And, and I think like that, is really kind of a hitting at like deep down our intuitions of like how art to a large extent is like social proof like you're showing that you're capable of things that other people are not i mean you can definitely think of like like you know uh rachmaninoff and stravinsky and some of these i mean definitely mozart but like some of these like very famous like classical artists that like the music was sometimes so complicated and it seems at some point that the complicated nature of it wasn't necessarily adding to the pleasure or to the beauty of it. It just adds to this overall aura of impre- like how impressive it is. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and to some extent we get off on things being impressive. Like in and of itself, like things being impressive as like oh my gosh how did they do that you know they must be superhuman that seems to be at the core of a lot of art and especially what makes art popular and that can take the form of like either hey you're incredibly good at keeping rhythm you know uh i guess uh probably that's a little bit maybe what you're exploring but also like you know like a, a band like tool you know tool has like all of these super complicated time signatures and uh like recursive references and weird things like that mm-hmm. and yeah. it's really impressive to to hear and uh, and you feel like you're kind of uh, in touch with the the creme of the creme when it comes to people's abilities you know when when you're doing that and uh, but it, it can also take the form of uh even just like massive waste of resources like you have like art pieces that is like you know like uh, a, a million gallons of milk you know thrown in a swimming pool. It's like, okay, that's, there's no, like, you know, much creativity here, but there's like a lot of resources. And, mm-hmm. and if you look at like uh, sexually reproducing species, uh, they, they are like these like displays of fitness that usually come in the form of massive waste of resources uh, that elicit this feeling of like, oh my gosh, this single, single uh, member of the species 
if, if they can waste so many resources, imagine all the resources they will have for our offspring and for our grandchildren. You know, it's, it's a proof of fitness. And uh, so it's, uh, yeah. could you say that sort of art as a means of getting laid almost? Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, weapons of sexual conquest. <laughs> I might even <laughs> okay. describe it. Um, and also, I mean, that also what, what uh, makes a lot of uh, battle between, I mean, you know, a rap battle or something like that is, is really like battle for getting laid to, to a large extent. Mm -hmm. um, and the, I mean, that, that's a pretty well-known model. I mean, I think uh, Jeffrey Miller, the writer of the, the Mating Mind, you know, has written a lot about like art from that lens and it's very elusive, very interesting. Mm -hmm. the, the layer I would add on top on this model is that um, you really have kind of both individual contributors, which is like, yeah, these, these people who find new aesthetics and explore them. And then you have like the, the people who kind of like are the glue that put together a lot of talented people into a cohesive aesthetic. And those are what I call the cool kids. And mm -hmm. maybe, maybe a classical example is you're in the, um, in, in, um, in, in public transportation. And then you see, you know, like a, a band of people, one of them is really great at, jumping in an amazing way somebody else does a, is very flexible so does weird you know elbow tricks um and then there's like one person who's kind of gluing them together so that they all kind of make one song together and that would be the the cool kid in the world of art i would claim that to a large extent you know like big big uh, fashion houses and uh big art movements they're kind of bottlenecked sometimes by cool kids they're like cool kids kind of uh, uh, don't really foster innovation because their incentive is really creating art for the masses. Mm -hmm. And that, that's kind of, of a shame uh, to a large extent that like a lot of artists, they, they, if they had like a very open-minded uh, cool kid to help them, they would produce amazing art, but then they end up producing just like very things of popular appeal because that's the only way they can get a job. Gotcha. So, uh... This this whole uh, conversation, you know, you're putting it through this Hansonian lens, and uh, I've been having a very similar conversation with sort of other spheres of music in the Twitter sphere, and uh, they're basically talking about it in terms of like prog rock and the sort of like uh, you know excess and you know waste, but uh, they're relating it back to the philosopher uh, Peter Sloterdijk. Are you familiar with this guy? Uh, no. Yeah, I, I'm not particularly either, but he uh, he has a, an idea of vertical tension, and it's sort of like you know, kind of the idea that you need to like actually put in all this extra work and like uh, get to this higher level. And uh, they sort of made a similar like fascist uh, uh, element, you know, uh, implication to it that you brought up in the presentation. So can you talk about how this can sort of lead to fascist aesthetics? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I mean, you can definitely look at a kind of a fascist art and it's very much just kind of like glorifying traditional like notions of uh, of uh, sexual fitness you know all of mm -hmm. these things of very uh fit people uh very athletic uh very normy i mean i guess in the less wrong sense like just not very mm -hmm. open-minded or like nerdy just like well-rounded and um kind of like herd mentality and i think like yeah that's that's definitely a, a big risk uh that happens if you if you don't open yourself up to like other other models of art, and uh, yeah, I guess like one way this also shows up is just basically you're signaling 
low mutational load, uh, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. the symmetry of your face. And there's like all of these markers that like show like, oh, you're just like broadly healthy, although maybe you don't have any special talent. And like that's, I think, like the, the risk that we could all become stuck in a, in a quote unquote fit attractor, but that's not actually interesting. Let's see. Um, let's see if I oh, uh, cheerleaders, more. maybe the, the cheerleader aesthetic is the other, <laughs> the other thing. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, in terms of the waste element of this, uh, like, you know, I, I mentioned I play guitar, but like at the same time, I've been thinking like, why the fuck does anybody play guitar these days? Because you can use a, a laptop and there's like essentially a blank slate and you can do anything you want with digital synthesis. So is using a traditional instrument like a guitar, just sort of a display of waste. Like I have time to practice this instrument and I have the funds to, you know, collect an instrument that, you know, is not uh, as high utility as like a laptop. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and you could definitely almost come up with a scale for those where like more expensive instruments would have like more of that element. Uh, instruments that are harder to play also will have that element. Instruments where it's very hard to learn because there are not many teachers uh, for them also. Mm -hmm. So like perhaps in a scale, you could say like something like um, the uh, electric keyboard maybe might be at the bottom or like something like a, a, um, a percussions and uh, then something like guitar, then maybe a little bit above that like uh, uh, cellos, you know, because they don't, they don't have like the markings for you to, to press. It's like, okay, you spent a lot of time like muscle with muscle memory to like know how to produce different notes. Mm -hmm. And maybe at the top, you know, like unusual, you know, traditional Chinese instruments that like nobody knows how to play anymore or like something like a theremin where like, yeah. okay, there's not a, <laughs> there's not a very well established, uh, you know, tradition about it. So it, it clearly just spent hundreds and hundreds of hours mastering this very obscure thing. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, with the, the whole signaling thing and like uh, art as a means of getting laid and uh, sort of waste signaling and stuff, would you say that this model is kind of a lower form compared to the latter models? Uh, yeah, perhaps. And it's uh, the value there is really more about it, the sexual market, which is like, hey, like that's kind of inevitable that there's going to be competition there. But a lot of it is like zero sum and like it's not necessarily producing like particularly good value and, and as i said like we could really be stuck on stupid competitions of like okay who has the most symmetrical face and obviously you know with a fascist uh, <laughs> a eugenic competitions there there were like prizes for who has the prettiest baby and something like that and like that's um not not necessarily adding value to their you know collective as much gotcha uh, so beyond the the cool kid, you know, you sort of describe the cool kid as like maybe one standard deviation above the mean in terms of uh, like their aesthetic assertions. Uh, and then beyond that, at two to three standard deviations is maybe the hipster. So can you tell us about uh, hipster theoretic uh, art and art as a shelling point creation? Yeah, 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 definitely. So yeah, that, that would be like model three. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, basically like, I mean like the, I guess like the equivalent I don't know if these metaphor lands on people, but I, it somehow like it, it points at the thing in, in my, my head a little bit, which is like the difference between geeks and nerds. And like geeks kind of like they, they love things such as, you know, like Marvel movies and like superhero things. And 
it's more about like the aesthetic of science rather than science itself. Okay, yeah. Whereas, you know, like nerds actually just care about like the, the truth of the matter. They'll read a physics textbook, whether or not they can show, show off to others about it. Um, so the, it's just kind of like a geek is more optimizing for like showing off to others like their aesthetic, whereas a nerd intrinsically cares about truth. And mm -hmm. likewise, in the world of art, I would say a cool kid is kind of a, a geek in the sense like, yeah, they will have like specialized interests, but it always comes down to how can I show off to the general population? How can I get like millions of followers? Whereas the, the hipster is just like genuinely fascinated by a very specific aspect. Uh, I mean, it could be, for example, reverb. You know, you're going to have a hipster that like all they spend their, their waking hours on is like fine tuning reverb models <laughs> to create interesting mm -hmm. sounds, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's their main thing. And of course, you, you can uh, stitch together, you know, the work of several hipsters into something very consumable. But uh, on its own, like a hipster will generally not be producing like a, a mega hit for, <laughs> for that reason. Mm -hmm. But they are almost certainly pushing the boundary of like what has been explored. And in, in that sense, I think like hipsters as well as nerds are like very valuable. It's just a matter of like recognizing them and kind of nurturing them, uh, pointing them at, at something useful. Um, and uh, I guess a, a note here is that uh, hipsters, uh, in the early 2010s, you know, there was kind of this whole thing of like, oh, everybody is becoming a hipster. And I, I would actually say that like, in that at that time, you know, where you would have like people in coffee shops with uh, with a typing machine and you know like uh, old bicycles <laughs> yeah. and um, uh, and people playing like weird instruments in public and like all of that, I actually would associate more with like cool kids started using the I, hipster yeah. aesthetic. Yeah. So because then again, it's like okay, yeah, something like hipster hipsterism itself became an aesthetic, and then cool kids were competing to show how much of a hipster they were. But I, I would say they were not true hipsters. Like the true hipsters don't actually care what others think of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so this makes me think of uh, like the, the shelling point element of this makes me think of uh, like Brian Eno's idea of senius, kind of like the genius of the scene. And so when you have all these hipsters or like these sort of, uh, you know, artistic fringe people coming together, there's maybe a synergy and some sort of emergence. Uh, does that sort of mesh with what you're, what you're seeing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's a uh, yeah, yeah. There will be yeah, definitely kind of the core of a of an artistic, like an, a generally new artistic movement or or aesthetic. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just a, a matter of like making sure the hipster to cool kid ratio is properly balanced. You don't have too many cool kids. Gotcha. Um... And so you mentioned like minimax strategies and uh, uh, I, I'm not sure if I fully understand that idea, but it made me think of like uh, Paul Erdouche and his sort of like complete asymmetry of capabilities. Like he's this prolific mathematician, uh, but he was, you know, completely incapable of other parts of his life. Is that sort of a truth hipster or like a, a nerd and the hipster is just the aesthetic version of that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it's a... Um... Yeah, I mean, definitely on, on like game metaphors, you know, like uh, uh, like when you're talking about, for example, like a tank, you know, in a, in a video game, it's like, okay, this character that specializes on 
just being very resistant, you know, and like it's, it's so resistant that like uh, resistant to damage that like even if it's it has like weak attack and like weak agility, it still doesn't matter because in many contexts like that will will uh, like be enough, um, as opposed to like a well-rounded character. Um, and I mean the, the truth of the matter is that in in real life, a lot of the, the times like minimaxing is a really good strategy and uh, again like minimaxing is defined as putting all of your points in just a narrow like set of skills and just like <laughs> zero points into everything else because you just want to maximize that and uh it, it does seem to be like in many skills for example it's kind of a you you need a threshold of ability before you actually get to do interesting things in which mm. case like you know just spreading your abilities like across the board doesn't even allow you to do anything interesting with anything, right? And uh, I think like that's, that's definitely a risk. Um, I, I would also relate it to like, yeah, like tech, tech jobs, you have like, you know, full stack engineers, uh, obviously very important, but then you might have like a person who's like a super good, you know, extra specialist on like, you know, C or C sharp. And like, whenever you have a problem with C sharp, that person will solve it. And it's, it's good to have people around that way as well. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Cool. Um, well, and I guess we... I guess in uh, in evolution, just like a last example, is uh, things such as uh, insane things like the 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 piston uh, shrimp, for example, right? Like uh, uh, they have like these weird contraction that like uh, uh, in in their in their um, um, their claws, uh, they click in a certain way that uh, it creates a cavitation bubble and uh, basically uh, knocks out anybody around them. And you know it's like one of those things that like it's kind of a discontinuity if you're if you're um uh if if you can do it with certain force below the threshold, it just does nothing. But if you can reach a cavitation bubble, then actually just has this massive effect. Um yeah, I would recommend anybody in the in the audience to Google uh piece and shrimp and like uh <laughs> watching a short video about it. But it's yeah, I mean in, in evolution you have a lot of uh animals who like basically just specialize in having one big trick and like they use that trick for everything gotcha okay cool um so uh, do you want to move on to uh the sacred number four yeah 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 i mean i think like that's when it comes to contemporary models of art and uh how people think of like the limits of art i get the impression that the highest level of art tends to be like sacred experiences and i mean nowadays obviously with the psychedelic uh, revolution or psychedelic renaissance like i think like uh, this concept of the pursuit of the sacred as the culmination of art i think it's uh, very fresh on on people's minds that you could you know one thing is to go to a museum and have a, a fun time another thing is to have a sublime transcendental experience and honestly like if if the if the the artist or like the style of art really resonates with you it can definitely happen i mean a lot of people have mystical like experiences uh because of consuming the right art in the right moment in time and um the the main problem here is that for the most part there's almost kind of a taboo in terms of trying to dissect what makes a sacred experience a sacred it's almost kind of a um people don't don't feel like you will take away the magic if you explain actually what's what's going on there. And in, in that sense, I would say that model of art does entail oftentimes a little bit of anti-intellectualism that people 
are kind of allergic to like, oh, well, don't tell me what's going on in my brain. I just want to experience it. But my, my take here is that if you truly understand what's going on in your brain when you're having a sacred experience, you can have them more often and you can have more of them and you can, they can even be better. So like I, I really don't see a problem with like actually, you know, trying to understand how, how they work. Gotcha. And you, uh, you sort of link this back to like personal development and you say uh, like the sacred is about leveling up. And uh, that made me think of just like Piercean sort of transhumanism and like uh, the abolition movement and all that. Uh, I mean, how, how do you think that somebody as like a traditional artist, like a painter or a musician, how do they uh, help you get at the sacred? Yeah, definitely. So I guess yeah, to, in that point, um, it completely like what is sacred to you will basically depend on what your model of the world is. And, uh, you know, if you, if you're living a tribe in the Amazon, you know, what's sacred to you might have to do with like the spirit of plants and maybe mother earth. If you're a Christian, you know, sacredness might have to do with like repentance and like the, the original scene and, and getting in touch with Jesus. If you're a, uh, modernist, you know, if you're a secular scientific uh, scientist, the sacred might have more to do with like uh, the cosmos, understanding the universe, you know, the Big Bang, uh, like big things like that. Um, if you're postmodern, uh, the sacred might have more to do with oh, the interaction between cultures, or like the the shared humanity across our divergent thinking, or or even like the fact that reality is inherently paradoxical like that, that's definitely a, a theme right like a lot of people who are kind of in the postmodern <laughs> level of development they really get off on on this idea of like there's no ultimate answer you know like there's reality is inherently contradictory or paradoxical um there's no reconciliation between science and and art for example and things like that but uh you know at higher levels you start to see kind of like no everything is connected and there's a perhaps the unity of knowledge Things may seem very separate and, and uh, independent, but ultimately they do come together into a big, big, big worldview that stitches them together in a coherent way. That is, I mean, that's definitely the sort of thing I, I aspire to. And I think a lot of my, the people in my circles would tend to, to prefer. Um, and I mean, I have, I have seen like some pretty nice like art pieces uh, that kind of evoke that. I mean, obviously the cheapest, and perhaps even the most effective way is to actually uh, add lyrics and like specifically discuss kind of the, the themes in your art. Uh, mm. So I could, I could mention, for example, I mean, honestly, uh, something like Harry Potter and the methods of rationality, I, I would consider <laughs> it a, an attempt at the sacred for, for nerds, <laughs> people, people who are like, yeah, like less wrongers and and rationalist effective altruists like yeah that's a very sacred type of writing honestly um because the whole point there was like hey like if, if you have like a very rational harry potter like he would actually try to dissect what's going on with magic scientifically and then use it mm -hmm. for the benefit of everybody and i think like that's that's a really cute and nice concept and it applies to <laughs> to, to, to the, our current world as well um, and uh, in music, there is this artist called uh, Barker, this um, uh, electronic music artist from Germany. And he, uh, he recently made an album about the hedonistic imperative, for example. Oh, wow. And I, yeah. And what I'm was a, his I'm name? A, Barker? Barker. Yeah. B-A-R-K-E-R. -E and uh, okay. I think his album is called Utility. 
I like it. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, uh, so the next one is exploring state space. And uh, so with the exploration, I feel like there's kind of this like uh, cartographical implication and sort of travel. And to me, that sort of hints at tripping. So is this kind of almost like the art of pharmacology in some respects? Well, that would be one instantiation of it. Um, I mean, I think definitely exploring weird drugs and combinations of drugs. And um, it's a pretty effective way of exploring the states of consciousness. It's also pretty dangerous un unless you really know what you're doing. Um, uh, and that's why, like, I mean, a, a more kind of a simpler example would be uh, exploring combinations of sounds. I mean, definitely exploring the, the states of rhythmic patterns. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a very interesting thing because... Uh, and, and actually, I think like really profound because you're basically exploring in what way you can make uh, internal metronomes get activated and then clash against each other in a consonant or dissonant way. And that's a super interesting line of research. Um, but it also shows up in things such as like uh, exploring the state space of sense. You know, mm -hmm. you can you're gonna uh, have this article about the perfumery as an art form and you know, you can also apply the fifth model, exploring the state space of consciousness to perfumes. And that one would suggest an aesthetic such as like, no, don't focus only on like, oh, this is a mysterious smell or this is a very erotic smell or, or these traditional things. Think more about like, oh, this smell is an instance of this region of the state space of consciousness that I didn't know about. And, mm -hmm. and you have kind of this craving for knowledge of what is in the entire state space and almost kind of a frustration with artists who are just stuck in a particular uh, region of the state space without like trying to explore further. Um, and of course it's, it's related to the first model in the sense that a lot of that aesthetic is about pushing the boundary, mm -hmm. but uh, it's in a sense more comprehensive than the, the first model because the first model is just almost kind of like trying to troll all the time. It's like, oh, I, I bet you didn't know this was also possible. Whereas the state space actually is pursuing clarity. It, it actually is pursuing like, hey, we would all benefit if we understood what is the range, the scope of what's possible. And, mm -hmm. you know, I personally find very beautiful when an artist is kind of a systematically exploring all combinations and then they come out and say like, well, we did all the combinations and maybe only these ones are interesting, but hey, at least we tried the other ones. Like it's, we just didn't ignore them. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of like something like flavor space, you're you know, exploring all these different combinations of bitter, sour, and like I saw your uh, Twitter poll today about uh, how we perceive sourness. And like, uh, I think that's an interesting thing because I mean, it's not a great flavor usually, but like part of me does want to explore every avenue and then sort of, you know, prune away the shitty ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, not premature, prematurely closing possibilities. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, like, consider, like, dissonant sounds. Like, if you're just starting out in music, you may just avoid some sounds, but then after a while, you can revisit them, and it's like, oh, gosh, I could actually use this as a building block, and you're exploring a space that didn't exist before. I would say... Uh, perhaps a last example of this would be in the realm of uh, like uh, plastic arts that there's this um, innovation in, in basically metallurgy called high entropy alloys because mm -hmm. 
it used to be the case that most of the alloys explored were, let's say, like 90% steel and 1% something else, you know, usually carbon, or it could be zinc or, you know, bronze or so something else. But like, um, it would be like the bulk of it about one material, then a tiny bit of something else. Whereas high entropy alloys are defined basically as any mixture of metals that has like five or more different metals and all of them in high proportions, like let's say more than 5% of each of them. And that's an insanely large combinatorial space. You know, there's like roughly, you know, like 30 different metals you could use in a practical way. And just like all the combinations with all of those properties and it's largely unexplored. We know very little about that combinatorial space. Chances are there's some amazing art to be discovered in some of those regions. Mm -hmm. Now, so are you about to have two metallurgy references in this conversation? Oh, sure, sure, sure. yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, cool, so uh, why don't we get to uh, energy parameter and uh, uh, neural annealing and all that? Yes, yeah, yeah, so, well, I guess those are the next two. So yes, the energy parameter, I mean, that's recognizing that, I mean, if you analyze, okay, how do people actually use art to a large extent, you can think of it as a way of modulating their energy levels. And I, I'm not talking only about like, you know, like drinking coffee or, or mm -hmm. something like that, because that's, that has more to do with like arousal and like energy in the way in which I'm talking about it here is a more general concept. And you can have, for example, very energetic, relaxed experiences. You know, you can have, have like these what's called like a Buddhist jhanas, you know, these states of high concentration, they can be very peaceful. At the same time, they're like very high energy, which is, you know, interesting that it's even possible to combine the two. Or uh, MDMA, you know, MDMA causes this feeling of deep calm, but it's also like energizing. It's not, they're not mutually exclusive. And uh, basically, most kinds of art, they tend to be popular if they are effective, at raising the energy uh, of the people who consume it. And also you would generally be gravitating, people gravitate towards art that increases their own energy. And you know, that there's a lot of uh, idiosyncrasies in there. Uh, but then, okay, so how do you actually raise energy? And this is really where like, you know, a, a scientific model of art becomes very possible because you would look in neuroscience like, okay, what are energy sinks and energy sources? You know, and, and you can think of, it's almost kind of if your brain is a, is a dam, you know, you have water coming in and water coming out and how filled up you are is basically the balance between what, how much is coming in, how much is going out. And uh, to raise the energy parameter, you can block energy sinks or increase energy sources. And this, I think, explains quite a bit, like, for example, the power of things like modern art, because one of the energy sinks that we exist that exist is basically i mean people who who read i guess less wrong might be familiar with this concept of um energy like um a bayesian energy sink that like whenever you recognize that something as very expected that is uh almost kind of a an anti-surprise right it's kind of like a letdown you you mm -hmm. very, very quickly cools you off it's like oh that's perfectly expected so you kind of uh Tune, tune your mind tunes it out uh, in a sense your mind is only allowing the things that are surprising to come up and uh and therefore you know when you remove any sense of familiarity 
in a given context. You know, when you enter an art gallery and they say, oh, you have to, you know, wear these special shoes and these glasses and these strange headphones and all of a sudden everything is completely unfamiliar. Like that will cause a spike in energy because you're accumulating surprises. You know, everything mm -hmm. is slightly surprising in a strange way. And uh, another way in which you can also do it is more straightforwardly increase energy sources. So, you know, obviously like flashing lights and very loud sounds and body vibration and all of those are like a way of like overwhelming the energy sinks. Um, and uh, of course, like psychedelics are like a very, very effective way of increasing the energy parameter. And there's a, I would say there's a very deep reason why psychedelics are associated with uh, art so, so deeply. They just increase the, the enjoyment of art more broadly. Um, and uh, well, yeah, I guess like, yeah, that's like model, model number six. And it connects to number uh, seven because number seven goes into this theory we call neural annealing. And this is, yeah, the second metallurgy me metaphor where mm -hmm. um, basically when you have like a, a metal and you use it, uh, for example, um, to bend things like, or, or for example, use a sword a lot, or you use like a, a component of an electronic material, um, eventually it gets what is called cold worked, which is like a lot of like little imperfections accumulate into it and it becomes uh, brittle. Uh, becomes uh, less functional, is easier to, to break. Um, it just doesn't serve its purpose as well. And something that you can do is basically reheat it above its recrystallization temperature. Uh, and this happens actually even before it melts. Like you don't actually need to melt the metal as such. You just need to heat it above a threshold. And then the, the atoms will start to basically reorganize such that if you then cool it down very slowly, they will, uh, all of them get aligned perfectly into this uh, geometric lattice. And it's gonna be a lot more smooth and it will have like a lot very nice properties like uh, uh, ductility and, and uh, strength uh, simultaneously. And likewise, we, we basically in our model, when you raise the energy parameter above a, above a certain threshold in the brain, and you keep it at that level for a while, it will first start to melt kind of your pre-existing patterns, uh, what in neuroscience they're calling entropic disintegration. And uh, later on, if you cool down slowly, you will reorganize into a, a much more harmonious and consistent pattern. Um, I mean, and, and I say consistent actually in two senses. First, in, in an emotional sense, like, you will have uh, relieved a lot of inner tension. And second, also in a cognitive sense, because when you're stuck with a, with a problem that is very hard to solve, by raising the energy parameter, you can explore many possibilities very quickly. And then cooling it down, you will basically crystallize a solution that satisfies many constraints. And you know, that technique is used for computation in like, for example, uh, simulated annealing, uh, which is a computational tool. So, I mean, I, I don't find it uh, that surprising. I mean, it's obviously amazing, but it's, it's kind of expected that a psychedelic might be helpful if you're really stuck in a problem, whether it's emotional or, or cognitive. And likewise, you know, really being hit very strongly by art will have the, the same effects. 
Gotcha. So, I mean, that might be why there are anecdotes of, you know, people taking LSD and uh, sort of having this like sense of clarity afterwards. Yeah. 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 I mean, broadly speaking, uh, any kind of like inner imperfection or dissonance is more likely to be smoothed out with, uh, with caveats, of course, because, right. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you could also become traumatized and it's easier to become traumatized in a high energy, uh, uh, state as well. So high energy states are very delicate as it were, you need to, you need a really good set and setting. You need a very good environment. And also like why art can be so damaging. I mean, I, for example, uh, this movement called shock art, right? Like it's all about like uh, shocking you with very, very upsetting images. Mm -hmm. Somebody who is fascinated by the first model would say like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. It pushes the boundary of art. But then it's like, ah, it might not be good for your mental health. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, gotcha. cool. uh, I would say, just to, to wrap up that, like I, I do think artists have a responsibility, like the more effective your art is, you know, the more responsible you are for it, basically. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, real quick, going back to the, uh, the messing with your energy parameter thing. Uh, so uh, spoiler alert for people who haven't seen the original presentation, but at this point you bring in some comedy and uh, you pull like an ice cream cone out of your pants and like do a little dance in the shit. And, there's like some comedy in the room. You can tell that people's energy parameter has been lifted. And so uh, this sort of element of surprise made me think of like stand-up comedy. And uh, so is the best stand-up comedy sort of Pristonian in nature, just in the predictive coding error sort of <laughs> uh, technique? I think that's a very interesting area of research. I mean, I, I haven't seen, yeah, I mean, a paper about like correlating you know, the popularity of stand-up comedians and uh, the uh, entropy of what they're saying. But yeah, my guess is that there's a sweet spot. Like if you're, if you're too random, then like you can, your brain is good at filtering that out. Basically you say like, oh, this is noise, you know? If it's too predictable, then it's boring. But if it's, if it's hitting the sweet spot, yeah, that's gonna be a, increase your energy parameter. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, so. You got into the, the puzzling uh, valence effects a little bit. Uh, let's see here, what else do I have in my notes? Um, yeah, was there anything else that you wanted to say about number seven? Well, I guess, yeah, the puzzling valence effects that like, um, in a sense, like the, the interest, one interesting thing there is that, yeah, there's a lot of things that is like surprising that they would have like any positive, positive effect at all. I mean, like uh, start out with, for example, like binaural beats. You know, binaural bits are actually kind of surprising because, um, you know, the inputs themselves don't have beats, but then your brain interprets those beats. And I think that's like very surprising for our nervous system. Like we, we get kind of like very confused about that. And yeah, that can be effective at raising the energy parameter for a little while. I mean, after, after you do them for a couple hours or several times, you stop being surprised by it and therefore they, they stop working. But, uh, generally speaking the the aesthetic of neural annealing would focus a lot on like hey let's find kind of artifacts of valence like things that we like that we shouldn't expect to have like positive or negative feelings but somehow they do and uh that that's kind of the the aesthetic would be very oriented towards that he's like 
exploring things that are surprisingly pleasant. And perhaps the an analogy here is like this: there's this uh, term in the internet called uh, oddly satisfying, right? And like it, oddly satisfying uh, mm-hmm. things. Right? Yeah, for example, like you know, hey, like this uh, piece of um, uh, what was an example? An example is like, um, oh yeah, this tennis ball fits perfectly into this bottle. You know, and like they they were made by different manufacturers. There's like no reason why they would fit perfectly, and there's something very oddly satisfying when that happens. Mm-hmm. And the the aesthetic of neural annealing would say like, yeah, that let's not dismiss that. Like that's actually pretty relevant. Let's understand why that produces that pleasant feeling of satisfaction. So that that's just something to keep in mind. That would be the aesthetic in this case. Gotcha. Another thing that just came to mind is like ASMR or something like that. Yes. Yes. Cool. Um, word. Well, uh, do you want to move on to the last one here? Uh, this one yeah. also, I didn't, uh, this one didn't click with me as much again. Uh, I feel like maybe it was at the very end of the presentation and uh, yeah, maybe you were glossing over it, but uh, do you want to elaborate? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, number eight. Um, I mean, I think like the a good intuition for this would be how um, how like there are some very cool and pleasant things, very cool art that like if you were to experience one right after the other, um, they cause a lot of dissonance. So, for example, you know, like watching a a, a documentary about like a given tragedy you know, like a, mm-hmm. something very, very tragic, a, a natural disaster, just to give an example. The documentary can be very moving and, you know, it could be very artistic. But if right after that, you, you know, put on some Tim Heidecker, or like some absurdist comedy, uh, it could be pretty unpleasant and jarring. It's like, oh, it, it kind of like destroys that sense of sacredness. And what I'm pointing out here is that just because two things are amazing on their own doesn't mean that they're like compatible now because we care about the state space of consciousness in general i think it's it's important to be able to experience those things uh and and be open to them even though they're presumably incompatible with each other so for things like that then the question becomes okay how can we find a third form of art that if we were to put in the middle they would work as a kind of like palate cleanser uh, such that like not only you can appreciate each of them individually, but also the transitions are very, very uh, consonant, very harmonious. Uh, and like they don't seem to detract against each other or compete against each other. So in the ideal vision of harmonic society, we would have basically such a deep understanding of the neuroscience of art that we can create a society where we're always, you know, in a very interesting space, exploring very novel uh, ideas and concepts and stimuli, but that never causing uh, crashes or, or, or a clash between them. And, and I think that's a, one of the main problems. Like, I think humans right now are actually pretty good at making art. What they're not good at is making um, kind of art that is friendly to other forms of art. There, they, mm-hmm. there tends to be a lot of, like, strife and, and, and struggle and uh, harmonic society would actually seek to to basically develop the science for how to harmonize different types of art. Gotcha. And I mean, besides harmonizing, would you say like just creating like intermediaries, like sort of like 
uh, liaisons from one art to another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and creating kind of a worlds of understanding that can include uh, forms of art that would seem incompatible with each other. Um, I mean, I, I could, maybe another example is, um, um, yeah, I mean, if you were to see two, one person is on MDMA and one person is on speed and they're like right next to each other, <laughs> maybe they're both having a good time, but, but they, 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 there's probably not gonna be many activities that they can enjoy together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's kind of this, yeah, this notion of like, hey, this state is wonderful, but it doesn't appreciate other states. Mm -hmm. and, and the idea would be to find, or like even a range in a society, kind of uh, geographically, such that like the movements that are like next to each other are compatible with each other, even though, you know, if you, if you travel far enough, eventually you, they will be incompatible. But the idea is that whatever path you make, will be harmonious and, and consonant and pro-social. Awesome. Cool. Um, well, that's all the models and we're about at about an hour. Uh, do you want to talk briefly about what you're doing at QRI and uh, any upcoming things? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So actually it's pretty exciting because we were going to have a, a physical internship on, on June, but of course, you know, all of these things that are happening, uh, that just kind of went out the window. Mm -hmm. um, and also a lot of the projects that we were working on involved a lot of like physical interaction, like for example, sharing the light, sound and vibration machine that we have prototyped that, you know, produces <laughs> related to the models of art that would be very related to model, uh, 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 basically the, the four, five, five, six and seven, basically. It's a way of raising your energy parameter very high in a very safe and sustainable way. Um, but yeah, basically that's, that's kind of a little bit in the back burner right now um, because yeah, we, we just can't share the SOPAC right now. So we are focusing on projects that we can work remotely. And just, just to kind of like briefly mention them, I mean, we, we're doing like some pretty interesting research on, on the symmetry theory of valence um, basically analyzing the, the neuroimaging data of people on extremely high valence states like uh, Buddhist meditation, the, the jhanas, um, 5-MeO, DMT. Um, I mean, I, I should say we, we're not breaking the law because we are, we're getting like EEG data sets from people in Mexico where it's unscheduled and they, mm -hmm. they can actually collect that data. Um, and, uh, and also, I mean, we, we are not collecting the data, they're just donating it to us. Uh, but yeah, broadly speaking, we're uh, analyzing a lot of meditation data, a little bit of IMEO DMT data. Um, we're also likely going to uh, get a psilocybin data uh, from Jamaica, where it's also unscheduled and people can conduct experiments there. Um, but then also we have like two other really cool projects, which is like we're, I mean, a lot of people mentioned that they, they really like what we're working on, but it's very difficult to kind of get into it because mm -hmm. everything is kind of very interconnected. Um, and that uh, you really need to kind of read three or four articles to actually start understanding even the first one. So, mm -hmm. so we're, we're basically writing a book, a QRI book. Um, it, it gathers some of the classic articles, but also has new, new content. And we definitely would appreciate like more volunteers there. There's a lot of like illustrations and uh, kind of assembling that needs to be done. 
And finally, we're also doing this really cool project on psychophysics for psychedelic research, where um, just to give you a very quick uh, taste of it, like uh, Alexander Shulgin uh, shared, for example, that on psychedelics, uh, you can understand a text uh, that has letters missing. So like, let's say you have a text and you randomly remove 30% of the letters. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's sober might have like very hard time like understanding the text. But uh, allegedly, if you are on mushrooms, uh, you can kind of fill in the blanks more easily, more fluidly and, and efficiently. So basically we're programming a, a set of tools uh, for basically allowing people to do these experiments online and gather data and show that, hey, sure, psychedelics maybe impair your reaction time, uh, and maybe you may get a lower score on an IQ test, but who cares? Because they also make you way better at these other tasks, <laughs> which is something that like, yeah, science currently is not really aware of that, you know, psychedelics can actually be performance enhancing in some ways. So, um, and all of this is to say these are active projects. If you're interested in collaborating or, or, or participating as an intern, we basically are having three intern cycles. We're in the middle of one right now, but we're starting another one in um, uh, May and June of this year, of 2020. So if you're interested in any of these, please uh, reach out uh, via the, the forum in the qualiaresearchinstitute.org. And, uh, and yeah, we can take it from there. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, I think that's all I have. Uh, thanks so much for talking to me and going through all these. Yeah, thank you. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> we can cool. uh, happy to do another one of these. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. Sounds great. I'll talk to you later. Awesome.